evidence and answers. What is the date of the Exodus? Who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Why aren't there historical records referring to an Exodus in Near Eastern records? Most Old Testament scholars and archaeologists believe the historical evidence does not support the Exodus. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Pat recently concluded a conference hosted by the Wailai Baptist Church in Honolulu, Hawaii. He answered many challenges against a historical exodus and presented new evidence that may surprise many as we continue our examination on the case for the Exodus. Now to conclude session three is our host, Pat. The Egyptian armies have withdrawn. Canaan is in complete chaos over here. They know something is up. They're the sworn enemies of Mitanni and Egypt. And the warrior king, King Supi Luli Uma, all right, the great king of Hatti, says, you know what, this is our opportunity. And he goes in and he attacks and destroys and wipes out the kingdom of Mitanni. All right, and he's able to do that because their ally, Egypt, can't come to their aid. Now, succeeding Amenhotep III is Amenhotep IV. Amenhotep IV. And Amenhotep IV, when he takes over, Egypt is continuing her very quick decline. Canaan disintegrates into chaos. The city-states in something called the Amarna Letters, okay, over a hundred letters on clay tablets, we know that, call to Egypt for help. They call to Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV, and we have the Amarna tablets. And they're saying, Pharaoh, help us out here. We are being attacked by a nomadic group called the Habiru. Help us out because if you don't send any aid, the Habiru are going to come in and take over the city-states from Egypt. All right, we'll talk more about this group, the Habiru. Habiru, what does that sound like? Think about it, okay? And they're saying the Habiru are coming in and they are taking over the city-states and if you do not help us, we are going to lose control of our city-states to the Habiru. And Egypt is silent. Egypt does not respond. Egypt doesn't send any aid to the city-states of Canaan, which they rule and which they are in charge of. Suddenly, Egypt cannot respond. What's going on there? Could it be that they've lost their army? They've lost their pharaoh suddenly. They've lost their industry. They're in a severely weakened state. Plague is still ravaging the land. Right, so Amenhotep succeeds, and it's under Amenhotep the fourth that Hatti says, Hey, Egypt's fallen apart over here. Now it's our time to take that Mediterranean corridor, and better yet, let's wipe out Mitanni while we're out it. So King Supiluli Uma of Hatti goes in and decimates Mitanni, takes the capital of Washukani, and destroys the empire of Mitanni. And they are gone. They're calling to Egypt. Say, hey, you're our ally. Help us out, man. And Egypt cannot respond. And they go under. Now, Amenhotep IV over there changes his name to Akhenaten, servant of the god Ak, or servant of Natan. 
and he suddenly adopts monotheism. All right? He orders Egypt to get rid of your idols, shut down all these temples, and they're worshiping just one God, the sun God. All right? No one knows why, but he is called the heretic king of Egypt. All right? He's one of the most hated kings of Egypt. He moves the, the capital, Egypt, drops from the number one power in the world to the bottom power. Okay, number three. Mitanni goes from number two to zero. They are gone. All right, and Egypt becomes the least powerful of those kingdoms. And suddenly, Akhenaten is saying, I changed my name, and now we're just going to worship one God. And he adopts a form of monotheism here. Shuts down all their temples, removes all their idols, and says, we're just going to worship one God. What's going on there? Why does that happen? Well, historians are puzzled, but could it be? Could it be that he saw what happened to his grandfather or his great-grandfather? They're still suffering from the plagues of Egypt, and he remembered what? These Hebrews, they're monotheists. They worshiped only one God. And could it be that is why suddenly he realizes our gods are failing us. They're useless. Each one of the gods, the ten plagues of Egypt, right, over the Nile, those represents the gods of Egypt. Okay, so... God didn't just pick 10 plagues out of random. He's showing, I have control over all the gods of Egypt. They're not gods. I have control over all these areas. Okay? And he just, that's why you have the 10 plagues. And Akhenaten might be saying, hey, our gods are useless. These guys were monotheists. And he turns Egypt into a monotheistic nation for a little while. Then he dies, and they go back to their traditional religions here and return to Thebes as their capital. Okay? He's followed by Smenkare, who rules for just a year or two. And then he's followed by the famous King Tut, Tutankhamen. All right? You guys know about him and the great treasure of Tutankhamen. But both of these guys only rule for a little while, just about 10 years together. What's going on? Plagues are still ravaging Egypt. Like coronavirus, these plagues don't go away. They ravage the land for decades. And King Tut is a young boy. He, you guys probably seen the Discovery Channel specials on King Tut. But he rules for a little while as a young boy, and he suddenly dies. Well, Egypt is in a desperate state after the death of Tutankhamen. He doesn't have any sons. The kingdom is falling apart. Canaan is out of control. They've lost control of the Levant. Now, desperate to save her kingdom from extinction. I mean, this is Hollywood material. King Tut's young widow, Anaxanamun, writes to the king of Hatti, writes to King Supiluli Uma, her sworn enemy. They are the number one power now. She writes to him. This is Hollywood material. And he sends a letter, and he says, I know you have a lot of sons, my husband has died. We have no heir. Send one of your sons, and I will marry him, and we will become a territory of Hatti. The Hittites will rule Egypt. Absolutely stunning. She says, Egypt will be a vassal kingdom of Hatti. Now, Hittite records say that Supi Luliuma is beside himself here. He can't believe what he has just received 
from the queen of Egypt. He can't believe that. He's running around his palace going, I can't believe this. What's going on here? We're being tricked. Somehow they're luring us. Come on. I, yeah, he's going back and forth, back, back and forth. You see him struggling. with. It would be like, you know, the United States going up to the Soviets saying, would you come and form your government here in Washington, D.C.? We give up. Take over America for us, please. We can't handle this anymore. I mean, that's what it's like. He's just, he just beside himself. So she writes again and says, hey, I told you, you have many sons. We don't have, come here. I will marry your son and we'll become a vassal kingdom of Hati. So he doesn't really believe it. So he sends a group of emissaries down to Egypt, all right, to check this out because he can't believe what's going on here. So he sends a bunch of ambassadors down. He sends a bunch of emissaries down there and they meet with the queen, Aung San Moon, and she says, I told you. Okay, I'm for real. Send one of your sons and we'll become your vassal kingdom. So he goes, all right. So the delegation goes back to Supi Luli Uma and they say, hey, king, this is for real, man. They're in shambles down there. And if you send your son, we're going to rule Egypt. So send your son. So he goes, all right. So he sends down his son Zidanza. Zidanza, and he's going to go down there and marry the queen of Egypt. And Hati is going to rule the Egyptian empire. The Egypt is in just a state of shambles. What caused it, historians don't know. But the Exodus event would be a very reasonable explanation. Now, the Egyptian general, his name is Horemheb. He's over there saying, wait a minute, we can't have this. We, we can't fall into the hands of Hati. So Zidanza, the Hittite priest, and his envoy, when they land there in Egypt, General Horemheb goes over there and assassinates Zidanza and his men. Gets rid of the queen and he puts one of his generals, K.I., on the throne. He rules just for a few years and then he's disposed by guess who? Horemheb. Okay? And that's the end of the 18th dynasty there. And he goes on to establish the 19th dynasty. But that's the collapse of Egypt there and the collapse of the 18th dynasty. What caused this sudden collapse? I mean, they're the golden rule of Egypt. They're the powerhouse, and overnight, they just go right down. Something catastrophic must have happened. Historians don't know what it is, but the exodus would be a very likely, very reasonable explanation. So here, Egypt loses complete control of this whole area, Canaan, the Mediterranean corridor. They lose complete control here, and the city-states cry out to Egypt for help. They said, there is a group invading us here from the east, the Habiru. They're coming in. And if you don't help us out, we are going to be overrun by this group of the Habiru. And they send letters to Amenhotep and King Akhenaten. All right, Amenhotep III, Amenhotep IV, Akhenaten. Called the Amarna letters. Okay, we found over 300 tablets there in Akhenaten's palace. Over 300 tablets. The kings of Canaan, the city-states are named, and they're pleading to Egypt for help, saying, help us. It's a typical political letter, right? Oh, king, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You're so powerful. We kiss your feet. We bow down to you. You're the man. You're awesome. I mean, you're, you're the one. We bow down. We worship you. Now come help us out here. We're being overrun by the Habiru. If you don't help us, they're going to take over, and you're going to lose all your territory. And Egypt is mysteriously silent. They are not answering. They are unable to come to the help, to the aid of these city kings. 
Okay, they say the Habiru are coming in and they're taking over. Here's an example of one of the Armana letters here. It's over 300. Okay? This one is from King Abdi Hippa. He's the ruler over Jerusalem at this time. Okay? And he says, at the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times I prostrate. I bow myself at your feet. He says, all the territories of the king have rebelled. May the king take care of this land. If there are archers here this year, all the territories of the king will remain intact. If you just send a few hundred archers, we can hold this territory. But if there are no archers, the territories of the king, my lord, will be lost. Okay, and there's an invading force coming in. They keep calling them the Habiru. All right, now, what does Habiru mean? Habiru means marauding nomads. When you see pictures of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all that, they're kind shepherds on a staff with sheep and all of these things, right? No, they are Habiru. They are marauding nomads. They're marauders, all right? Abraham, when he went to rescue Lot, what did he do? He took on the five kings of the Levant, and he killed them all, all right? And he comes back to Jerusalem, and he gives 10% of his booty to the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, okay? Who are the Habiru? They are marauding nomads. You don't want to mess with these guys, okay? That's what they are. Now, is there a tie between Habiru and Hebrew? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. There's an etymological tie here. But anyway, at this time, Habiru uh, means uh, marauding nomads, okay? So they have been wandering the desert for 40 years, and now they're coming into Canaan, and isn't that timing perfect? Isn't God's timing perfect? Who owns Canaan? Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. Well, when Joshua comes in, you never once hear Egypt. They never run into an Egyptian fort, Egyptian army, Egyptian... They don't run into anything of Egypt, right? The country's falling apart, and they're coming in. And in these Armana letters, the kings say, hey, King Labayu, King Labayu of Shechem, he's aligned himself with the Habiru, all right? And if you don't do something, Labayu is going to take over more territory from you guys. Now, come in. You got to take care of this guy, Labayu, all right, the king of Shechem. All right, now, what's going on here? Well, Labayu means what? The lion of Yahweh. The lion of Yahweh. If you read in the book of Genesis, the patriarchs settle in Shechem. They settle there, all right? In fact, Jacob's land that he buys, where he wants to be buried, is in the land of Shechem. Right? Joshua 24 states that, Labayu, the lion of Yahweh, he may have come to a knowledge of the God of the Hebrews. And that name, the lion of Yahweh. And when Israel comes in, Joshua takes Jericho, they cross the Jordan, they capture Jericho, the first fortress city there. They capture Ai, the next city there. Then they capture Bethel, and Joshua chapter 8 says that the Israelites set up camp between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Guess what? Shechem is right in between Mount Gerizim and Ebal. In other words, the Hebrews set up camp all around the city of Shechem. Why? Because there was a friendly king there, and he welcomed them. And in fact, if you read the book of Joshua, they don't attack, they don't ever attack Shechem or the territory of Shechem, okay? They end up settling there. That's why in the Amarna letter, they're crying. They say, hey, the king of Shechem, Labayu, has aligned himself with these Habiru, and he's taken over more territory. 
matches up with the book of Joshua, doesn't it? Why would the Habiru have an alliance with Shechem, but yet be conquering all these neighboring cities? If you look at biblical text, it makes a lot of sense. And then we have something called the Ipuwer Papyrus. We have the Ipuwer Papyrus here. This is a papyrus that's found in the land of Egypt. And you remember the Exodus. Plagues just absolutely ravaged the land and decimated the land for decades. And critics argue such an event would have been noticed somewhere, written somewhere in the records of Egypt. Well, this is the famous Ipuwer Papyrus, or the Papyrus of Leiden. It's an ancient document that was found by a Swedish diplomat, Giovanni Anastasi, in the early 1800s. He took it and brought it to a museum in Holland. Okay? And there it stayed there for decades, until finally somebody was able to translate it. And they discovered this is a 13th century document. A 13th century document, okay? about maybe a century after the Exodus, and plagues are still ravaging the land of Egypt. And this is a lamentation of an Egyptian official named Ipuwer, who is lamenting over the fallen state of Egypt and the disease and the disasters that has struck Egypt sometime prior to the 13th century, prior to his time. The timing with the Exodus is just absolutely uncanny here. And he describes the series of disasters that struck Egypt. And if you notice, seems very familiar, doesn't it? Huh? He says, the Nile turned red like blood. Men were thirsting, looking for water along the shores of the Nile. Fire fell upon the land. Trees are destroyed. The grain is gone from the land. The cattle are suffering in great agony. Darkness covers the land. The firstborn are dead and groaning. There's groaning and crying in the land. The jewelry of the women has been given to slaves. Slaves flee into the desert like nomads who live in tents. Does that sound familiar here? And then finally, we have the Merneptah Stila. This is dated about 1210 B.C., Pharaoh Merneptah okay, of the 19th dynasty who follows King Ramsey. This is when the Egyptians have recovered and they're conquering territory once again. He goes up to Canaan and he conquers the nine bows of Canaan. Okay, every great pharaoh has to go up to Canaan and defeat the nine bows. And he sets up this victory stela for himself. It was discovered in 1896 by the great William Flinders Petrie there. And he talks about how he went up there, 1220 B.C. This thing's dated about 10 years after that. He goes up there and he defeats the nine bows of Egypt there. All right, he names them all. He says, I crushed them all. And then there's a sentence here. He says, Israel is wasted, bare of seed. Israel is one of the nine perennial powerhouse enemies of Canaan that Egypt has conquered. Now, if the exodus happened in 1260 B.C., they wander for 40 years in the desert, they get into the land 1220 B.C., how is it that suddenly they are one of the great nine bows of Canaan that the Egyptians have to defeat annually? In other words, the Merneptah Stila rules out the late date of the exodus. The exodus must have happened much earlier. If you take the 1406 date, they come into the land about 1360 B.C., 
And if you read the book of Joshua, it took them some time to get established in the land. That gives them enough time to become one of the nine bows of Egypt, right? That they must conquer. This is the first mention of Israel in Canaan outside of the Bible. Well, we have one final question to answer here. What is Ramses? What is the city of Ramses? Could it be referring to Ramses the Great? Well, in the Egyptian record, there are other Ramses as well. The city of Ramses could be referring to a previous king named Ramses. We know that because even in the book of Genesis 47:11, there, Jacob and his family run into a ruler named Ramses. Okay, they settle in his territory. Right, so there were Ramses prior to Ramses II. So that's a very good explanation. Or this might be a later editor who just updates the city. For example, if we're writing about Hawaii, I'm sure Diamond Head was not called Diamond Head by the Hawaiians. I'm sure it was called something else, Mauna something. Now, a guy writing about, who picks up maybe an ancient history book about Hawaii, and he says, Mauna, hey, what is this? And they go, oh, well, that's Diamond Head. He might have said, oh, let's just put Diamond Head then, okay? A later editor might have done that. Either one of those two, and you see that in the Bible. You see many times the phrase, the city was once called this, now it is this. Or what used to be called this. Okay, so maybe an update. I kind of think it, prefers, it refers to a previous Ramses who was a ruler or governor over territory at that time. So what do we conclude from our study here? Well, we conclude that the date of the Exodus, the one that makes the most sense, okay, that all the pieces seem to fit together very nicely, is that 1406 date. Okay? That seems to be the best date here. That Joseph entered probably during the rule of the Hyksos, all right? the 15th dynasty. That makes the most sense. The collapse of the 18th dynasty, that sudden collapse, fits the timeline very well. The fall of Mitanni, the second most powerful kingdom, the ally of Egypt, their sudden destruction could be accounted for and the inability of Egypt to come to the aid is probably the Exodus. Okay, the Amarna letters, the city kings writing to Egypt, pleading for help, and Egypt is unable to respond. Good reason why? They can't. They lost their army. The land is devastated there by the catastrophes of the Exodus. The Ipuwer Papyrus. What motivates this lamentation? I think the Exodus is a very good candidate. The Merneptah Stila shows Israel's in the land by the 14th century BC. The timing is uncanny. Further studies we've done at Jericho. Jericho, Kathleen Kenyon missed it. Jericho was occupied. Okay, it was abandoned in 1550 BC, but between 1400 and 1300 BC, that city was occupied again. And we've done some archeological studies, carbon dating, pottery, the pottery Kenyon was looking for, she was digging in the poorer part of the city. They dug in a different part of the city and they found that pottery, all right? Also, the scarabs they found in graveyards. If you saw the movie The Mummy, those Egyptian beetles, those are found in, those date and suddenly stop uh, before 1300 BC. That city was occupied between 1400 and 1300 and suddenly it's destroyed again. Oh, that's the time of the conquest, okay? The fall of Ai, the city of Ai, they thought was at Etel, digging in the wrong place. We discovered the city of Ai, Kerbet Tel Makarter, 
uh, and everything matches up with the conquest of Joshua there. You look at all the facts, it builds a strong and reasonable case for the Exodus. So I think if you look at the archaeology carefully, it matches up very well with the biblical record. So did the Exodus happen? Was it a historical event? I think we've got really compelling evidence to say, yes, indeed, it was a historical event. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Please use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Let's